The Bible tells us that sin entered the world through the world's first human inhabitants, Adam and Eve. And as soon as sin entered the world, and as soon as God in his great mercy um, made a decision, certain results were inevitable. Because God had promised those first people, if your sin is going to cost death, if you eat from that tree over there, he said, I'll kill you. They ate from the tree. Then God decided to forbear their sin. God decided from the very first sin, he wasn't going to squash each human when he or she sinned. He was going to forbear, which means put up with sin. And we should all be very grateful that's the system God set up. Because we all would have been vaporized a long time ago, right? But as soon as God decided to forbear, to put up with sin, certain things were inevitable. First, it was inevitable that this world was going to see some wildly wicked stuff. And we have, and we do. This world seems to be filled with people who are constantly trying to outdo each other with how wicked they can be. Another result is that a lot of people look at the evil God forbears. I won't say allows because it's for a limited time only. But People look on the evil that God allows and they, make a, they, they come to a very bad conclusion, which is, look at that evil, there must not be a God. God gets a really bad rap because he's decided, think about this, because he's decided not to squash each of us when we sin. What we're really seeing when we look at murder and terrorism and child abuse, and you name it. We're not seeing evidence that there is no God. We're seeing evidence of the depth of the mercy of the God there really is. But God gets a bad rap. For being consistent. You know that? We want God to be inconsistent. We do. Because we want God to let our sins sort of slide. But we want God to do something about that kind of sin. So, one result, a world filled with evil. Another result, people come to this bad conclusion that there must not be a God because there's evil. And then a third result is this, that people, even Christians, even us, we look at God allowing for a limited time, forbearing sin, and we come to another bad conclusion, that sin must not be that big of a deal. My sin 
must not be that big of a deal because I can always find someone else's sin that's worse that I compare favorably to and I've never really hurt anyone and it's not like I'm Hitler or anything. Well, we've come to a really bizarre passage of Scripture this morning. If you think the previous ones have been weird, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I'm so glad this passage is in here. Because it's going to teach us some stuff about the seriousness of sin, and about justice, and about atonement. And it's terrible to read and super important that we do. We, we've gotten to the last section in our walk through the books of Samuel. Okay, this is, this is the last section. Starts today. Um, chapters 21 through 24 are sometimes called like the appendices of the books of Samuel because they're just kind of tacked on at the end. Tacked on because they're not chronological. We're going to read about a famine that happened in Israel when David was king, but it, it doesn't come after what we just read. It happens sometime earlier, probably quite early in David's reign, actually. These, these chapters, they're thematic, they're not chronological, but that's okay. They're still very important. And one last thing before we get going, I have to give you a bit of a history lesson or this thing won't make sense. And I can prove that. It didn't make sense to me when I read it either. I had to look this thing up. Okay, This, this uh, kind of centers around, centers around an old history lesson from the book of Joshua. Okay, There's this weird story in the book of Joshua. So Joshua's the leader right after Moses that God tells to, to lead the army, lead the people in militarily to take over the Canaan, the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land God promised to give to Israel. And they didn't take that over by voting, okay, or like zoning regulations or anything like that. They took it over by wiping out the people that live there. And it's a story for a different Sunday, why God, why that's okay, okay? But as they are doing that, the, the level of violence Israel poured out on the, the inhabitants of uh, Palestine is not lost on those people. And one of those people groups, the Gibeonites, they look at Israel and look at themselves and realize very quickly, we're not going to survive this thing. And so rather than fight, in Joshua chapter 9, we're told that the Gibeonites tricked Israel into entering into a covenant with them whereby they would be protected by Israel instead of wiped out by Israel. They used deception. But even though Israel was deceived, God told Joshua and the elders of Israel, that's a binding covenant. You guys should have investigated this before you just jumped in and made a covenant in, the name, in my name, in the name of Yahweh your God. So God said, you got to keep this agreement that you made. Does that make sense? It's been 300 years. That's going to come up again in our passage And if we don't get that, we won't get the rest of it. Let's dive in. We're just going to read 14 verses this morning uh, uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And they start this way. 
Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because Saul put the Gibeonites to death. So David called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the sons of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Now you see why we needed the history lesson before we read that. Here's what we learn in these two verses. At some point, probably early in David's reign, there was a famine, a a very bad drought. Three years one right after another. It wasn't unusual to have a dry year or a couple of years. But when it got to be three years, David thought, maybe I I better check in with God on this. Maybe there's a supernatural cause behind this that's pointed at us, at Israel. And there was. When We don't know how David inquired of the Lord or how God answered, but God made it clear to David Here's why I'm keeping it from from, uh, reigning there. It's because Israel as a nation has gone back on its covenant with the Gibeonites. King Saul, when he was still king, he tried to wipe out the Gibeonites and, and, and Israel made a covenant to protect them. And so God said, that's, that's your problem right there. Um, We're told that King Saul, he sought to wipe out the Gibeonites because of his zeal for for his people. Listen, here was Saul's problem. His zeal for his people got in the way of his zeal for his God. And that never leads anywhere good. So that's the problem. David, at this point, understands, um, understands what the problem is. So he calls up the leaders of the Gibeonites in verse 2. This subservient people group living among Israel. He he arranges a a meeting with their leaders. He goes in and he begins to eat massive amounts of crow right in front of these leaders. He makes no excuses. He doesn't cast blame anywhere else. He says, look, my nation that I'm in charge of now, we violated this covenant that we have with you, how, how do we make this right? Because David knows sometimes the only way we can make things right with God is by making things right with someone else. And so that's, that's what he's doing. You with me so far? Okay. Verse three. Thus, David said to the Gibeonites, what should I do for you? And how can I make atonement How can I make up for this, pay for this? How can I make atonement so that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? We Israelites. Verse 4. Then the Gibeonites said to David, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. Uh, and And David said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us, Saul, and who planned to exterminate us from, the, from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And David said, 
okay, I will give you seven guys to execute. David sets up a meeting, this meeting, as I said, eats crow. We have been unfaithful to our covenant. How do I make this right? Now, the plan the Gibeonites come up with is pretty unpalatable to us, isn't it? They make clear, well, we're not going to be bought off. Like our brethren that were killed by King Saul, I mean, they're, they're invaluable. So money won't work. And they say, and the rules of our covenant won't let us start executing Israelites. This is their way of saying, we've been faithful to the deal. David says, name your price. I want to atone for this, pay for this. They say, all right, so give us seven relatives of King Saul. And we're going to execute them in a horrible, horribly disrespectful and shameful manner. And we'll call the whole thing square. And David says, okay. Now we need to go on with that story. But verse 7 takes us out, is a parenthesis, is a pause. We'll get back to David rounding guys up. It's what he's going to do. But first, verse 7. But the king, David, he spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of Yahweh, which was between David and Mephibosheth, between David and Saul's son, Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan. Okay. So David has already admitted we've been unfaithful to the covenant we're in with Gibeah. Okay. The Gibeonites say, round us up seven guys to execute. David says, okay. And he's on his way to go do that. The most likely candidate to be chosen as a relative of Saul is a man named Mephibosheth. He is Saul's uh, grandson through the crown prince, Jonathan. Okay, like legally, heir-wise, he's the closest relative. He's the most likely candidate. But David can't turn over Mephibosheth because he has made his own oath, his own covenant in the name of Yahweh, his God, whereby Mephibosheth would be protected. We read about that in 1 Samuel. Uh, David said to Mephibosheth's daddy, who was David's best friend, Jonathan, Saul's oldest son, he promised, when I become king, David said, Jonathan, I will not, like all other ancient kings, I won't round up your descendants and murder them. I will protect your heirs, Jonathan. Mephibosheth is the only one of Jonathan's heirs left. So David can't turn Mephibosheth over because he can't like be faithful to one covenant by breaking another covenant. Now we're going to get back into the story of what I'll call appalling justice. Verse 8. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, 
their names were Armani and Mephibosheth, but this is a different Mephibosheth, okay? Uh, apparently, that's a family name. I don't know, because I'll tell you who this is. Rizpah was a concubine of Saul. So these are direct descendants of Saul, but not like through the legal heirs, okay? From, his, uh, uh, from Rizpah, who is a, a concubine of Saul. Uh, so... Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, these two guys, Armani and Mephibosheth, whom she had born to Saul. And then the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul. So these are grandsons, Adriel, the son of Bar, uh, whom she had born to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. So there's the seven guys, two sons by a concubine and five grandsons of Saul. Verse 9, then David gave these seven men into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord so that seven of them fell together and they were put to death in the first days of the harvest uh, right at the beginning of barley harvest. In verse 8 we read, David really went through with this. He really carried this out. He went and chose seven relatives of Saul, handed them over for execution. Then the Gibeonites really carried out their end of the plan. They, this translation says hanged. Your Bible might just say executed. Don't think gallows and like ropes and nooses here. This is, if they're hanged, this is being impaled. Obviously, this sort of thing is foreign to us. Um, disgusting to us, sickening to us. But Israel had made a covenant, which is serious. In fact, if we go back into the book of Joshua, we would hear that they entered into a covenant. But in Hebrew, the word is they cut a covenant. Um, in the ancient world, they didn't have notary publics. They didn't have file cabinets. So when you made a contract with someone, almost all of them weren't written. How could you be sure that the, the other person you entered into a covenant with wouldn't later say, well, I didn't really agree to that. Well, that's not what I thought our deal was. What you did was you set up a ceremony like we see God and Abraham do in, in the book of Genesis, where you, you cut a covenant. And the cutting part is they killed an animal. They cut that thing in halves. The two parties or representatives of the two parties would stand sort of between the pieces. It made a nice center aisle. Okay? They would take their vows. They would promise their ends of the covenant publicly before witnesses. And then they would walk the center aisle between the two halves of the dead animal. And, and that was like, may I look like this if I go back on my end of the covenant? And, and there are witnesses there. You can't say later, well, that's not what I meant. Everyone knows that's what you meant. It was very intentional and very obvious. That's what Israel did with Gibeah. May I look like this. They Covenant unfaithfulness is serious business. And what we are seeing here is David having to uphold the law he has sworn to uphold. The law of Moses. 
You know what David's law says about when one party seriously injures another party? You know what it says. You've heard it. It says, but if there's serious injury, then you will give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, and any other word like splinter for splinter, you name it. David's, this is a symbolic application of the law of Moses happening. And I say symbolic because Israel's actually getting off easy. This seems very harsh to us. They're getting a great deal. Ask yourself this, when Saul tried to wipe out the Gibeonites, do you think he killed more or less than seven Gibeonites? The Gibeonites give Israel a great deal. They pick this symbolic number of completeness. You just give us seven and we'll call this a deal. That's what David has to do to uphold his own law. It's a rough day at the office for a leader right there. But wait, it gets weirder. Here's how our passage ends, starting in verse 10. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, had done, uh, the concubine of Saul, had done, then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul in Gilboa. Verse 13, David brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there, and they gathered the bones of these seven men who had been impaled, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin, in Zelah, in the grave of Kish, Saul's father. Uh, thus, they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. Okay. Our passage ends with this weird story of a mother's grief. Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, we met her up in verse 7. She had two sons executed on this hill. And what she did is she took sackcloth, right? Uh, so she's obviously mourning. She lays it on a rock and she has the worst, most grisly, awful camp out of all time. She stays there where her two sons and the other five men are impaled. And for some period of time where they're just left, their bodies are just left out there. And she makes sure that the vultures and the critters don't pick at them. When David learns of this, um, you know, David is moved. And then David does something strange. This is an old story that I won't get back into, but Saul, King Saul and his son Jonathan and some other sons, when they were killed, their, their remains have been up in Jabesh Gilead. David goes and exhumes those remains, takes them home into Benjamin. All the rest of these guys are Benjamites too, because they're relatives of Saul. Takes them and buries them all at the same time. 
That is a very important symbolic act by David first of respect for these seven men who literally died instead of the rest of the nation. Everybody's going to starve to death if it never rains. Seven men die so that the rest of the nation can live. It's a very, whether I would say heroic, but maybe they didn't have any choice. But David sort of elevates them to a royal burial, buries them at the same time as Saul, though we don't know it's in the same place. But also he goes and digs up the cause of this whole thing, Saul, and buries him and Jonathan, because it wasn't just Saul, it was Saul and his bloody house, we were told. And he buries the cause of the problem and the solution to the problem all at the same time. He literally puts this whole thing to rest. And then it rains and God hears people pray, pray and, and we move on. That's the story. What could we possibly learn from something that bizarre and gross? Well, I think there's four things this passage teaches us that we need to learn, that we need to know. We'll start with this one. There is mercy in uncomfortable revelation. There is mercy in uncomfortable Revelation. In the first two verses of this passage, of this chapter, God told David what was wrong. Right? Don't skip over that. That is a great gift God gave to David. David was like, so there's something jamming up our relationship with God. He asked God, God tells him, here's what's wrong. David can't fix it if he doesn't know what is the problem. Now, was it comfortable to hear from God what the problem was and what the solution was? No. And how about this? Would it have been easy for David to have a yeah, but conversation with God? God says, here's your problem. And he tells him the story about Joshua and the Gibeonites and King Saul. Couldn't David have said, well, yeah, but what that, I, what me, what, heh. like that was, King Saul did that and he's already dead. And the Gibeonites tricked Joshua into getting in that covenant in the first place. And that's such old news. Come on, seriously, is it fair for the rest of us to be suffering for something that they did? None of that. You know why? Because David, at least at this point in his life, David understands this. When God says something's a problem, it's a problem. When God says something is wrong, it's wrong. And when God says something is just and right, that means it's just and right. David's just like, thank you, God, for telling us what the problem is. Now let me do my best to help us repent from the sin that got us in the situation we are in. Here's how that applies to us. God has told us what our problems are. It's, it's right here in black and white and sometimes red. And it can be uncomfortable not just to read this thing, but to let this thing read me. 
And it's really easy to read something that God says is a problem or something that God says I should do because of the problem that I have and have a yeah, but conversation with God. Well, yeah, but that's way too old timey to apply to me. Or in this situation, it really couldn't have been helped, God. Or come on, you can't expect me to, right? Listen, when God tells us our problem is a problem, it's a problem. And sin is our problem. It can be very uncomfortable to be confronted by it. But it's not, God doesn't tell us because he's mean. He tells us because he's merciful. He loves us. And he wants to give us the opportunity to fix through confession, through repentance, the things that really are our problems. God's not mean by telling you what your problem is. He's not trying to take away your fun and your joy and all that stuff. He loves you. But he needs to tell you sometimes what your problem is. Just like our friend Jeff Bubach, who's watching right now on YouTube. Hi, Jeff. Right? He didn't want to have surgery. He was hoping his injury wasn't as serious as it was. His doctor could have told him to make him feel a lot better. You know what, Jeff? It's just a sprain. And Jeff would have breathed this huge sigh of relief. Oh, thank goodness. I don't think I have a problem. You know what? The doctor would have been a liar and he would have still had a problem. And six months from now, he would have been worse off than he's going to be six months from now because he fixed his problem, even though it hurt. There is mercy in uncomfortable revelation. Second lesson from this passage is that sin is a bigger deal than we tend to think. We read this passage, and if we really try to picture what it is being described here, like seven real life people just being impaled and hung out there, we recoil in disgust. You know why? It's disgusting. That's why. But that part of us, when we read this, that goes, this is too much. This is too far. We need to push back on that part of our hearts and our brains. A little bit. With stuff like this. We need to push back with, this is how serious sin is. This is what covenant unfaithfulness looks like to God. This is what wrath towards sin looks like. It's awful, serious business. God's not playing around when it comes to sin. He forbears it for a limited time only. What we, what we saw described in this chapter... It's what the wrath of God looks like. And this was Israel getting off easy. God hasn't mellowed out in his, own, in his old age. The wrath of God is still waiting on millions and millions and billions of people. And it's a terrible, awful thing to think about. So we don't. But you know what? We should. You know who told us we should? 
God and Moses. You know the Bible verse that goes, teach me to number my days? You know that one? You know the context? What Moses is talking about? Psalm 90, Moses wrote that. Moses says this, who considers, God, the power of your anger? Who thinks about your wrath so much that it makes us really afraid of you? Who does that? The answer, nobody, because it's sort of uncomfortable. Then Moses says, so because of that wrath we're headed toward, teach us to number our days. You know what that means? Teach us to consider our mortality. Teach us to think about, we've just got a few precious days before we stand before that God who thought this chapter was okay. That will motivate a heart of true wisdom because true wisdom is knowing that God who is a God of wrath. Sin is a bigger deal than we think it is because sin requires God's justice, which is way scarier than we want to imagine. Third, this chapter teaches us that atonement is gory, but it also works. Atonement is just something that pays for sin. Atoning for sin in the Bible is always gory business. If you know the temple system, what did God require to atone for sin at the tabernacle in the temple? Animal sacrifices, and that was bloody, disgusting, and then he was burning the corpses of animals. It was not, I'm glad we don't do it here. I'll just put it that way. It's disgusting. We saw a picture today of atoning for sin. It's gory. It's horrible. God meant what he said when he promised. We read it multiple places in the Bible. Vengeance is mine. I might repay. Is that what he said? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Through atonement. Or justice. Right? I can pay for my own sin someday, but I sure am glad I don't have to. Because... But atonement is gory. This is why to atone for the sins of mankind, Jesus didn't get put in time out. To atone for the sins of mankind, Jesus didn't get grounded. To atone for the sins of mankind, he was, Isaiah tells us, mutilated beyond recognition as a man. Why? Because God is a cosmic child abuser? No, because atonement is bloody, gory business. What was happening on that cross was Jesus was receiving every eye for eye, tooth for tooth, harm for harm, bruise for bruise, that every one of our sins has ever deserved. And that couldn't happen lightly. And God, because he promised to pay to make sin cost. He couldn't just write it off and say, well, I guess never mind. He would either be a liar or he wouldn't be just. But listen, atonement's not just gory and awful and disgusting. It's also effective. It works. 
We see it in this story when that poor mother is out there beating vultures off of her boys. Did you catch when she stopped? She was out there until it rained. Which means God lifted the curse and this. The atonement worked. It was disgusting, horrific, and effective. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's horrific. It's disgusting. I don't like to think about it. Rachel almost walked out of the movie years ago, The Passion of the Christ, right? It's awful. But it's effective. It works. And finally, this passage begs of us to be like Mephibosheth. And what I mean by that is being protected by a separate covenant. In this story, there was no better candidate to feel the wrath of, the, of breaking the covenant than Mephibosheth. He was the most likely candidate. But the king, David, said, I can't take Mephibosheth and put him on one of those stakes because I promised to protect him. That's our best and only hope, guys. There is no better candidate to face the wrath of God someday than you or than me. It's what we deserve. The only hope we have is that the king, Jesus, can say, I can't do that with this one because I promised I got a side deal with this one. She's mine. He belongs to me. I can't keep that covenant of the law and my wrath by breaking this one of protection. The king has opened up a covenant, a new covenant, to anyone who wants to come and seek protection under it. You have to decide, do I want to see how I do on my own before that God of wrath? Or do I want to be protected by a separate covenant with the king? Here's one way he worded it in his own words. Jesus said, maybe you've heard this. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. He'd be protected by that covenant. He continued, the one who believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe in me has been judged already because he has not been believed in the name of the only begotten son. Did Jesus go on that hill to be executed on that stake before God on your behalf or not? If he did, you don't have to be scared of the scariest thing in the universe, which is the wrath of God. Not because it ain't scary, but because it's already been poured out, emptied. And then you get promises like this. Hey, I've gone to prepare a place for you. If it were not true, I would tell you. I've gone to prepare a place for you. He's God with carpentry experience. Who could possibly be better to build a place for you one day?
He told his disciples, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas raised his hand and said, um, I beg to differ. Uh, we don't even know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? Jesus said, what did he say? I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody's getting to the Father except through me because that's the only separate deal there is. Be like Mephibosheth. Enter into the covenant he offers that protects you and me from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even the weird parts, even the the bloody parts, the unpalatable parts, because there's truth in there, Lord. Thank you for the reminder of what maybe we need to think about, the fury that you have been storing up as you forbear sin. It's not that you don't care. You're just storing up wrath. And and ours can either be poured out on the person of Jesus Christ or it's still waiting for us. Thank you for the separate covenant. Thank you that the, the atonement, that we remember what Jesus did. It was bloody and awful, but it's effective. It works. Thank you that we can be like Mephibosheth protected by a separate covenant. We deserve your wrath, but you promised, you promised to protect us if we believe in Jesus. We love you. We love you through him. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're able, stand with us this morning and let's finish.